The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going to resume in the book of Titus, where we left off before our Christmas series. We'll be in Titus chapter 2 this morning. And if you need a Bible, there's one sitting right there in the pew that you can use. Also, if you want to follow along in the outline on the back of your bulletin, a few notes for you there if you'd like to take notes. And before we delve back into Titus, just a reminder to our body, uh, Pastor Steve Fernandez, pastor of Community Bible Church up in Vallejo, He's been a faithful minister up there for over 30 years, and was diagnosed with a brain tumor many months ago, and has undergone radiation and chemo, and he, he is getting weaker, so continue to keep him in prayer, his elders, their church, um, their entire community, and him and his wife, Karen, they are thankful for our prayers and prayers of saints everywhere, lifting him up on a regular basis, and we'll keep you posted on his status, just a good friend to our church, so don't want to forget about him. All right, let's go to the book of Titus. Next week, we will have Children's Church again that we do twice a month during the sermon time, but today we're going to get us here, so you can follow along as well in Titus. Uh, where we left off last time, we've been going Titus chapter 2, and just a quick review, Titus was a, an assistant to the Apostle Paul, and probably joined the Apostle Paul's ministry in the 40s AD, so maybe 10, 15 years no, about 10, yeah, 10 plus years after Jesus died, rose and ascended into heaven. And then a few years later, uh, God saved the Apostle Paul. And then the Apostle Paul, soon thereafter, as he began his ministry, was able to have an influence on Titus to the point that Titus, probably as a young man, was able to kind of shadow the Apostle Paul uh, as Paul did ministry, traveling, planting churches. And what we know from Scripture, from the book of Galatians in particular, and the pastoral epistles, that Titus was hanging around faithfully to the Apostle Paul for two-plus decades, 20-plus years. That's a long time. So Titus was to be commended for his faithfulness and perseverance and sticking with it uh, through good times, bad times, hard times, no doubt, because not everybody did that. There's testimony from the Apostle Paul at times where people started with him and they bailed on him or they abandoned him or that some even turned their backs on him began to attack him. Not so with Titus. Titus and Timothy, uh, two younger men that followed Paul and were faithful to the end. And so that's Titus. And so here it's the nearing the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry in the book of Titus, short book, only three chapters. And Titus um, probably got saved under Paul's ministry. And uh, at the end of Paul's ministry, he's got Titus along, and they stop on this uh, little island called the island of, uh, actually kind of a sizable island, the island of Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean. And for the most part, uh, it's probably unevangelized, not a whole lot of Christian contact, probably a little. Uh, but the Apostle Paul evidently had a long stay on the island of Crete and went around and communicated and talked with a lot of people, shared the gospel, and there were believers there who embraced the truth of Jesus Christ, and Titus was with Paul. It was time for Paul to depart unto other things, and he left Titus on the island of Crete to help set things in order and bring some structure uniformity to local churches there on the island of Crete, and especially emphasizing, telling Titus, Paul did to establish godly leadership and put some godly leadership intact in all these little churches or little fellowships, and so that's 
what Titus's job or commission is. So that's what the letter of Titus is all about. The Apostle Paul is writing Titus, reminding him of his priorities that he needs to keep in mind while he's on this very difficult, challenging situation, the island of Crete, and Paul or Titus is working with uh, believers there, and they've got some struggles. They've got a little bit of false doctrine. They've got uh, some division and disunity among their saints. They've got some false teachers who've crept into their church. Uh, they've got a lack of experience in certain areas. Uh, so they've got all the typical problems that churches today have. Nothing has changed. Every problem you see in the New Testament churches is alive and well in all of our churches today. This is the reality of uh, church life and sinners composing churches. So we can learn from it. Um, so Titus is pretty much trying to be a problem solver and help this church become healthy. And so he establishes and talks about leadership in the first chapter. Now we move on to chapter 2. And after talking about leadership and proper leadership, now he gets and starts talking about everybody else in the church. And he does it by categories or age groups uh, and just big swaths or chunks of people. Okay, And he started with the, the older men, who should be the exemplary leaders in a church. Uh the older men, hopefully they've walked with God the longest. Hopefully they are the wisest among us. Uh, they are the most experienced. They've been around the block many more times than we have. So they are elders are people we should emulate and look to. And so logically the Apostle Paul starts with okay Titus, now address the older men in your congregation and remind them how they are to live. So we already addressed that. We talked to the older men in this congregation. We reminded you of your priorities as godly Christian older men, what they should be in verse 2. And just a reminder, old men, how, how are you doing? Okay, you don't have to answer out loud. Good. Then we went on to, he goes on to older women in the congregation. And they just provide a, a wonderful, beautiful, stabilizing influence in any family, organization, community, and especially in a church. And so Paul says these are what the older godly women should be about. This is what they should be modeling in their life. And for the most part, it was reverence. Um, I think for the older men, if you could summarize it, he gives many virtues and attributes they should be pursuing, but I just summarize all those with uh, self-control. Godly older men, they're just self-controlled in every area of their life in a way that is be, uh, to be emulated. And then the older women, they're just reverent, godly, content women who love God. And that's what they should aspire to. To be, and then after addressing the older men in the congregation and the older women, then, or the yeah the older women, then he goes on to the younger women. So that was the last thing we talked about: the exhortation to younger women, um, emphasizing really their family life, and they're not as seasoned in their family life, and they're to be looking to the older women and older men as models, and they are to be kind and loving their family in a way that God wants them to, which doesn't come naturally, by the way. It's not common sense. It comes from Scripture and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is not common sense at all. Common sense talks about what we do naturally, and what we do naturally we do as sinners, which is not good according to the Bible. Um, so there's a word of exhortation to women. So today we are now moving on to the next category of folks that make up a congregation, and that is the younger men. So let's go ahead and look at that. And we are now looking at verses 6 through 8 in Titus chapter 2. So young men, pinch yourself, pay attention. This exhortation is for you. Starting at verse 6, the Apostle Paul tells Titus to remind those in the congregation, likewise, Titus, likewise, Pastor Elder Titus, 
urge or command the young men in your congregations to be sensible. Some translations say sober-minded, which is actually a better, more literal translation. Sober-minded. But it can mean sensible. Self-control is another legitimate translation, but it's self-controlled in your thinking is the emphasis there. So likewise, urge the young men to be sensible or sober-minded. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So that is the command to young men in the church. And I just broke it up into three points there by way of emphasis. So this command to young men. The Apostle Paul says, urge the young men, command the young men, plead with the young men, implore the young men, beg with the young men in your congregation. So that's what I wanted to do this morning. I wanted to beg and plead and beseech and everything else, the young men in our congregation, to really take this to heart. So uh, that's my goal this morning and to accomplish it. First, if you're a young man in the church, go ahead and stand up. I'm not going to embarrass you. Just stand up. You're a young man. Young man, you've got to stand up. I know I didn't make everybody else do this, but you're a boy, so stand up. Or the younger men. Okay, go ahead and sit down. Now, if you were a little confused thinking, hmm, am I a young man or not? Do I qualify or not? Because I know some of you are kind of deliberating. You weren't sure. Well, just so you know, that's okay if you weren't sure because we do need to clarify that because it, it isn't clear, especially in light of our culture, Today versus Paul's culture 2,000 years ago. As a matter of fact, um, who are the young men? Who is this exhortation for? We've got to answer that question before we even go on. And so if you look at the MacArthur Study Bible, Johnny Mac says, uh, young men begin at age 12. And then if you look at his uh, commentary, he says, young men begin at age 20 or something like that. He, he also was confused. So that's okay. Um, there's no hard and fast, clear line. Someone said we were, uh, my wife and I were in Israel a year ago, and we got to see some uh, walking parades of young men who are entering into adulthood at age 12. So even today in Israel, they're celebrating the fact that a, a young man, he's making a, a transition from boyhood to being a young man at age 11 and 12, around there, uh, which is consistent really with the history of the Bible. Um, but that's not all that needs to be said on it in terms of who are the young man that Paul is addressing here. Um, like I said, around age 12, there is a transition in many different ways that goes in the life of a young man in terms of his, the ability of what he's able to understand and comprehend. Even his body, physiologically and biologically, begins to change and mature. But it's not overnight. It's a process. There's a transitional period. So I would say there is testimony from the Bible that uh, a boy is considered becoming and approaching young manhood, if you will, at, or probably around age 12. But it's not overnight. You can't say that age 13. Now, everything that's true about a young man is true about a 13-year-old. Because that is not true, not even in Scripture. It's scripture even allows for this transitional process of becoming a young man. For example, in, in Numbers, early on in the book of Numbers, um, God, through His Spirit, very explicitly delineates that there's a threshold at age 20 for a young man in his life. And he just reiterates it over and over and over again. And it was at age 20 that a young man was qualified to go to war. Prior to that, he wasn't. So there's definitely a distinction in terms of these 
uh, phases that are incremental regarding the development of young men. So there's that uh, age 12 or so where they enter into that realm, but they're still more than likely under the supervision and authority of their mom and dad and their parents. And then they continue to grow, and then at least in Israel, in the book of Numbers and other places, at age 20, they were qualified to go off to war. And then there are other ages, like 25 and others, for serving in the priesthood, and other ages where you consider to be an elder much later. So that's the testimony of Scripture. So we, the point is, there's no hard and fast line. It's age 12, it's age 20, it's age 16. It's when I move out of my mom and dad's house. It's when I turn 18. I'm an adult. Not, not really. You may be 18, but you act like you're 11. So I'd love, you're not really an adult. Or, or maybe somebody who's 17 acts like they're 27, and they're very responsible. So there's no hard and fast line in terms of being legalistic about it. So, um, But I, generically, we could say that uh, in... Titus chapter 2, this exhortation for young men is the category that complements the young women that he just talked to, and the young women clearly are of the marrying age, and many of them are able to have children. So this is definitely an older group of folks. This is not 11 and 12 and 13 year olds in Paul's mind. And to him, it's just basic, his culture. Titus would know what they're talking about. Uh, the believers on the island of Crete would know what he's talking about. So this is probably what we're talking about. People of marrying age who aren't grandparents yet. So it's a big swatch of people there that this covers. Uh, and I think the point of emphasis is on young men who are not under total authority of their parents anymore. They've got some independence, if not total independence. Uh, so, And some of you could be in that transitional period. Again, for our culture, that those college years are kind of the transitional gray area where you're transitioning out of authority from your parents, becoming independent, becoming that young man, that young woman that the Bible describes here. So young men, uh, anywhere from that you know, early 20s, late teens, early 20s, all the way up until before you're a grandpa and considered an older man. So that's what we're talking about today. So let's go ahead and look at it. So I broke this down into three things here. Um, the title I put is Godly Young Man, and actually the title should be A Plea to Godly Young Men. Because that's what we're doing. We are pleading with you. There's one main verb that is a main exhortation for the young men. And then actually Paul gives some words to Titus to implement relative to his main exhortation. So my three points there, uh, let's look at those. Uh, there's the exhortation, the example, and the expectations. But let's look at point number one. And that's the exhortation to godly young men. Hopefully they're godly young men. Part of this is also encouraging them how they can become a godly young man. But we're saying the exhortation for godly young men, that's verse 6, that's our first point. And his exhortation basically is sensible thinking. And he emphasizes thinking, having self-control over your thinking. That's why when it says in verse 6, the exhortation, likewise urge the young men, command the young men. This is an imperative. If you are a young man and you profess to be a Christian, uh, this is an obligation for you. This is not an option whether you need to obey it or not. But what is the command? Likewise, urge the young men in your church to be sensible, says the New American Standard. Uh, the New King James, sober-minded, which is a more literal translation of the Greek verb, which emphasizes the mind, how you use the mind. By the way, that same form or that same word has been used with the older men. They are also to be sensible in their thinking. The older women were also exhorted to be sensible in their thinking. The young women were also exhorted to be sensible in their thinking. And now the main command given to young men is that they are to be sensible in their thinking. That is the common word and attribute used 
with all categories of people. There are unique things about women and men and younger and older, and there are some things that are just the same, and that is we all have a brain, we all have a mind, we're all accountable for how we think, and every single one of us is affected in our words and in our actions by how we think. Hence, this command is given to every age group, and it's a priority. If you're a Christian, you need to guard your thinking and thought life. And that's really the only command he gives the young men. So of all the things he could have said to young men, and there are a lot of commands in Scripture that would apply to young men, Paul thinks it is sufficient here to just emphasize one. If you are a young man, priority number one, yeah, there's 37 other commands, but priority number one for you as a professing Christian, as a young man, is you need to do this one first. Everything else evolves around this. Everything else flows out of this. You need to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and sensible in your thinking. Because according to Proverbs, you are what you think. Aren't we? The words we say flow from our thought life. How we live and our actions flow from our thought life. That is the Christian life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, mind, soul, and strength. And so this is the main exhortation to young men. You need to control your thinking, and your thinking needs to be uh, some other synonyms of this word that is used here. Sensible, self-controlled, which we already said. Sober-minded, sober meaning uh, level-headed, balanced in your thinking, not going to extremes in your thinking, which young, zealous, myopic people can do at times in their thinking. So this is balanced, level-headed, practical, sensible, self-controlled thinking. Again, a synonym is self-controlled, and immediately that should remind you of Galatians 5, when one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and actually it's the last one mentioned, is self-control. So you can't fulfill this command if you're a young man, if you're not being controlled by the Spirit of God in your life. And one of the main ways that the Holy Spirit controls us is through our intake of Scripture and biblical truth. God uses His truth to help control us, to speak to our conscience. So, uh, very important. So that's the main exhortation, is we need to be, have sensible thinking. So if you're a young man, you need to evaluate yourself and, and evaluate your thinking. How am I thinking? Am I a sensible thinker? Am I self-controlled in my thought life? Or does my thought life get away from me? frequently or, or too frequently. Everybody's thought life gets away from it. We ought to continually just rein it in, don't we? It's a battle. It's a mind. But a young man in particular, for various reasons, has a special challenge of trying to rein in his thought life. Uh, the Apostle Paul put it this way. When he was talking to Timothy, Timothy was a young man. From Paul's point of view, when he wrote 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and Paul wrote to young Pastor Timothy, and one of the exhortations he gave to Timothy, he reminded Timothy in that epistle a few times that he was a young man. And he encouraged him as a young man, but he also exhorted him as a young man. And he reminded him, as a young man, you're, you're vulnerable and susceptible in certain ways as a young man. And specifically, one of those, uh, he said, flee from youthful lusts. And we're going to talk about a little more specifically what that means. But I want to go back to this idea of, first and foremost, control your thinking as a young man. Um, here's, actually, I want to emphasize that by the opposite of what it means to be sensible or self-controlled or sober-minded in your thinking that could be typical of what it's like to be a young man. 
How do I know this? Because I used to be a young man, and I'm still kind of a little bit of a young man. So I'm going through that transitional phase. But I look back frequently, reflecting, thinking, what was I like as a teenager? Ooh, that was ugly. What was I like as a 20-year-old? Boy, was I stupid. What was I like when I was 30? What was I? And now that I'm in my 40s, just going back and looking back is always a good and healthy thing to do. Uh, it can be discouraging, and at the same time, if you're a Christian, it is encouraging because you can see how God is changing you, refining you, molding you, squeezing you. No pain, no gain. Hopefully sanctifying you, right, in the Christian life. So as I was looking back, reflecting, okay, what was I like? What was I characterized by as a young man from my 20s to all throughout my 30s, even early on into my 40s? And what were some of those traits that I think are typical of young men that they need to work on? And where are those consistent with what we find in Scripture when it addresses young men and their behavior that's illegitimate? Um, So the opposite of being sober-minded, self-controlled in your thinking, uh, would be to be impatient. Impatient. That's probably the most important one. The older I get, the more I realize how patient I need to be and how patient I have not been, especially the younger I was. So that's probably one of the main things is uh, being patient. So being impatient is the opposite of sober-minded thinking. Also, um, young men tend to be presumptuous, assume things that are not true, and particularly assuming that they can do a lot of things in their own strength because strength is the glory of young men. And a lot of times we think we can do it on our own. So that's something that young men are uh, susceptible to is being presumptuous. Also impetuous and in a hurry. That was true of Peter the Apostle, especially early on as Jesus was training him. Always wanting to get out ahead of everybody and even telling Jesus what to do. We need to hurry up and uh, think about your own self. Is that is that true in some areas of your life? Is just go, go, go and in a hurry and not being willing to be patient and not willing to wait. It can be true of, of youth. This is part of what I think Paul means when he says flee from youthful lusts because it's a, a generic category. It's, he's not just talking about sexual lust. It's the lusts of youth, the desires of youth, the illegitimate, overzealous desires of youth, and it goes beyond uh, sexual desires. It's the desire of pride, the desire of ambition, those kind of desires, uh, an overly uh, zealous desire to correct people and to be critical you can be very young men can be very critical young christian men who love doctrine can be very critical hypercritical in their 20s and 30s i know this from going to a christian college and being a bible major and then especially in seminary where i'm surrounded by all these young men studying theology studying doctrine which is a wonderful thing but the bible warns us knowledge puffs up and can make us arrogant And as young men, if we don't have wisdom and restraints and self-control and humility, we can be hypercritical as young men. So that's a common trait of of young men. They can be overly critical in their theology and what they know and want to point out and criticize everybody else. As many times they can be know-it-alls. Arrogant. And a lot of this, again, goes with this overzealous nature. Uh, I already said impatient, uh, being in a hurry, thinking before you talk, thinking before you act. These are just kind of, could all fall under the category of youthful lusts and desires that might typify some areas where younger men could be vulnerable. So that's a good uh, place to start by checking our thought life and see how that affects every other 
area of our life. And so the exhortation here is, young men, stop, think, evaluate, reflect, and see where you're at in light of this exhortation of your thought life before Almighty God and lay it before Him. So that is the exhortation to younger godly men. Sensible thinking. Reign in your thought life. Some of you young men might know very clearly in a very specific way of this exhortation that Paul gave to Timothy when he said, flee from youthful lusts. Now Paul said that to Timothy who was a pastor and a key leader in the early church. So Paul doesn't think that <clears throat> once you become a Christian, <clears throat> excuse me, and a Christian leader that you don't struggle with youthful lusts or wrong desires anymore. He's a realist because he knows human beings. So you've got to be honest with your desires. You've got to be honest with where your lusts are and confess those to God, get people in your life to hold you accountable and also counteract it with and supplant it primarily with biblical truth, with the word of God that is living and active you take in, that you meditate, that you memorize biblical truth, that you learn biblical truth, you become a student of the Bible and biblical truth, and just keep taking it in like a sponge, and God will use that to, to leach you of that, and to cleanse you, and to help you along the way, and help you fight the battle of your thought life, that's the only way you can overcome it, it is a supernatural battle, it is a satanic battle, your thought life, in that regard, and I think of probably young David in the Psalms, or whoever wrote that psalm, reminded us how can a young man keep his way pure it's a rhetorical question how can a young man that speaks exactly to who we're talking about today it's through the word of God thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you God so if you are a young man who wants to please Christ and you want to fight the battle of the mind then regular intake of the word of God needs to be a regular discipline of your life and it has to be serious and you know what? God will help you. He will use that. And the Holy Spirit will be your advocate. He'll be on your side. He'll use that to help protect you. Sensible, self-controlled thinking. And then regarding this command of sensible thinking, there is a practical component to it. I mean, there's a lot of different ways we could say this. I urge the young men, be smart. Think right. Don't be stupid. How many times as parents, those of us that are parents, who have young men or have young men, or maybe you were a young man at one time and your parents said this to you, you know, why did you do that? That was dumb. That was stupid. That was impulsive. That didn't make sense. Wow. What put that thought in your brain? And that's really what uh, Paul is saying here. This needs to be a priority as we talk to, discipline, train, encourage, and set the model for young men. The exhortation is to have sensible, practical, uh, sober-minded, godly, biblically-influenced uh, thinking on a regular, ongoing basis. That is one of the most important things that's going to help young men as they grow and develop. They have got to get their thinking right. And there's so much that influences our thinking. Which takes me to point number two. After number one, the exhortation for godly young men sensible thinking is verse seven. And that's the example for godly young men. The example. Godly living. So it's kind of unique when the Apostle Paul talks to the young men here because to the older men, the older women, and the younger women, when he gave them commands, he gave them several things to consider, several attributes, several things to pursue. But really, technically, with the young men, it was just one. Be a sober-minded thinker. That's it. 
but then he goes on to give an illustration and to buttress that truth with verses 7 and 8, where now he talks personally to Titus. Okay, Titus, after you talk to all the young men, Titus, I've got a word for you. Titus, you have a special and unique ministry to the young men in your congregation. There it is. Because why? Because Paul worked with Titus when Titus was a young man. The Apostle Paul worked with Titus and saw him grow and develop and mature as a young man. And Paul knows how important and vital that was for Titus to have an older man modeling for the young man what godliness was in his life, putting his thoughts into actions, putting his thoughts into words. And so that's why Paul makes this transition and says, Titus, by the way, while you're with the young men and among them and in their midst, you need to be a godly example for them. You need to show them how to do it and show them what the implications are for these young Young men need models, don't they? Actually, young men don't need models. Young men will have models in their life. They will have heroes. They will have people they gravitate towards. Every young man I've ever known, just about, does that naturally, whether it's a good role model or a bad role model. So they don't need role models in their life. They will probably naturally have those. What they need are godly role models and heroes in their life, don't they? That's, that's what he's going to get at right here. And so that uh, takes us to verse 7. So let's look at it. Uh, Paul says to Titus, In all things, Titus, Pastor Titus, show yourself to the young men in particular to be an example of good deeds. And by good deeds, he doesn't mean superficial things. Open up a lemonade stand and sell each cup for a nickel. He is talking, the, the word for good is a very specific word used in the New Testament, and it's talking about godly behavior flowing from knowing Jesus Christ. Fruits wrought by the Spirit of God. Supernatural good works. These aren't shallow, superficial, meaningless, petty deeds. These are flow from knowing Almighty God. And all things show you in every area of your life, Titus. You've got to be balanced in every area of your life. As younger men are watching you, Pastor Titus, they're going to want to, they're going to inquire about every area of your life, not just on Sunday, because they want to see if you're real or if you're a hypocrite. Are you consistent or a phony? Do you have integrity? Then, Titus, this needs to be true of you in every area of life, when people are looking and when they're not looking, doing it all for God's glory. You need to be an example in an ongoing manner for the young men in your congregations of godly living. That's at the heart of discipleship, by the way. When you disciple and mentor someone, you don't just sit down and lecture to them and preach to them. That's not all there is to discipleship. Discipleship, actually, is having somebody walk by your side as you live life. It is. Or somebody following right behind you, walking in your shadows as you live life, and you interpret life for them. That's discipleship. And that's what Paul is asking Titus to do for the young men in his congregation. You need to be a true discipler and live life before them so they can clearly see what it looks like. It needs to be modeled. We need modeling. That was at the heart of Jesus' teaching. That's the best kind of teaching. That's the only kind of teaching that makes sense and lasts is when you not just tell somebody how to do it, you've got to show them how to do it. Even the disciples who were raised in the synagogue and raised on Old Testament Scripture and raised to love uh, Jehovah, God of the Old Testament, who became apostles, these men, and they were probably young men at the time, they asked Jesus, Jesus, teach us how to pray. You know what they were asking? Jesus, not just tell us how to pray. Show us how to pray. They did not know how to pray. 
And I believe Jesus literally modeled prayer for them as he modeled every other of life and of ministry for them. And so that's the emphasis in verse 7. Titus, show the young men how to do it. You can't just tell somebody, do this, do this, do this. It's do this and then watch how I do it. That's why in Corinthians, Paul could tell his congregation, be an example of me as I also am of Christ. But that verse always blows me away. So I'm thinking, wow, I could never say that to anybody, at least to a congregation. Be an example of me? Uh, I don't think you always want to do that. But anyway, Paul said, be an example of me as I am of Christ. Watch my example, follow my model. And that's what Titus needs to do with the young men. And so here at GBF, we need to do the same thing. The, young, the older men that we're already talked to, we need to be an example to the younger men in our congregation. And the more mature younger men in our church, we need to be an example and a model to all of our younger godly men or younger men in the church who des- desi- desire to be godly men in their life. Because Christians need godly role models in their life. They do. And so he goes on, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds, which would include purity of doctrine. So you've got to have proper biblical teaching in your life. Doctrine is important. Doctrine is not a dirty word. It's not a scholarly word. It just means teaching. That's all. Biblical truth. Biblical teaching. You can't have godly living without the foundation of godly teaching. Godly living flows from biblical teaching. Pure doctrine. Proper biblical teaching and understanding. It flows from that. That's why uh, Paul says he puts it as a priority here. We want good deeds, but you can't have that with it without proper biblical teaching. There's all kinds of Christians running around confused by wrong and false teaching that lead them astray because they're putting their energies in doing the wrong thing because they it's based on the wrong thoughts, wrong doctrine. So you've got to have the right teaching in your life, Titus, uh, and you've got to share that teaching with the younger man. Also, you have to be dignified, Titus. You can't be flippant. That's what dignified means. Someone who's worthy to be uh, emulated. Now, I want to ask the young men in our congregation, who are your role models? And I want to just share one Bible verse. Actually, two. Turn to Romans chapter 1, keep your finger there. And then go to Psalm chapter 1. And keep your finger there. We'll go to Romans chapter 1 first. Because I would suspect, if you are a young man, you probably have a hero in your life, or you did. And if it's not somebody you personally know... Maybe it's a movie star, an actor. Maybe it's an athlete. Maybe it's some musician. But you probably have a hero. You probably have somebody you talk about and think is cool. Well, the question is, what is the quality and the character of the person who is your hero or the model in your life, the role model in your life? Uh, Romans chapter 1 look at verse 26. It just talks about God, godless people. And they're typified by horrible godless behavior. Romans chapter 1 verse 30. Some of that behavior, they're typified by being gossips, slanderers. They hate God. They're insolent. They're arrogant. They're boastful. They invent evil. They're disobedient to their parents. They're unloving. They're unmerciful. Verse 32. These are just godless people. They're, they're among us today. Verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, they call themselves religious those who practice such things, they're worthy of death from God's point of view. They not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. The phrase I wanted to emphasize there was the last phrase in verse 32. 
not only do they do these horrible, wicked things, they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Who do you give hearty approval to in your life as far as your heroes and role models? Say it's an athlete. Is it someone who's a total rebel and defiant and has a bad attitude? Or is that athlete somebody who's worth modeling their character and behavior? So we need to think about that. Or who are your music heroes? What is their life like? Is it something to emulate and that God would be pleased with, like a Stephen Curtis Chapman or Madonna? Where are you at? Where's your hero? So we seriously need to evaluate and think about who we're looking to for models in our life. Young men need godly models. And then uh, we'll look at Psalm chapter 1 just real quick. And this is just a good reminder of how young people are influenced by other people. Actually, we're all influenced by other people. Are you being influenced by someone else, or are you influencing other people? Uh, Here, the young man, it applies to the young man, can be influenced by who he associates with, who he hangs out with, who's influential in his life, who he talks to, who he eats with, who he has communion with, or hangs out with, has dinner with, spends time with school at, talks to on the phone, texts, emails, goes to movies with. You're going to influence your behavior. And so Psalm 1, verse 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Walk pictures hanging out with. Who do you who do you walk with at school? Who are the crowds you hang with? That's kind of the first level of intimacy. They're going this way. Everybody's going somewhere. Did you know that? Everybody's walking a certain direction. Who are you walking with? What is your goal? What's your destination? What are your desires? That's the first level of intimacy as you get to know people. And there are they taking you along? Who are you walking with? What crowd do you walk with? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Don't walk with godless people. Don't hang out with them. Don't associate with them. Don't walk with them. Don't go on their path. Then he gets a little deeper. Uh, verse 1, he says, "Don't and don't stand in the path of sinners. You know what that is? That's the next level of intimacy. You're walking along. You're getting to know each other. You're commiserating. Oh, you do this. Oh, you like this. And then all of a sudden you stop and pause and face each other. And then all of a sudden a friendship begins to build and cultivate. And now there's a level of intimacy that you don't have as you're walking. And you're stopped in place, ready for dirty deeds. That's what it's talking about. So there's this progression of intimacy that is developing by virtue of who you're hanging out with and what's the influence. So it goes from walking with bad people to standing, you know, like when you're driving down the street in certain neighborhoods and maybe you've got a a group of 17 shady-looking teenagers on the corner at 1130 at night on a school night. What, smoking cigarettes. What are they doing there? They're standing together. That is warning. That doesn't look good. That's what this is talking about. So it goes from walking, then it goes from standing, and then after you stand, you get to know each other, and then, oh, yeah, we can hang. we got a lot in common. So what do you do? You go secretly away and isolate yourselves, and you go into somebody's house, and then you sit down. Don't sit in the seat of scoffers. That is the fullest level of intimacy. Now you're planning together, eating together, spending your lives together. You're on the same page. And it was a progression. It was little by little. It was incremental. It was subtle. And before you know it, you are hanging out with the wrong crowd. And this goes back to what kind of modeling do you have in your life. And that's the poetic picture of Roman, or, uh, Psalm chapter 1. But let's go back now to Titus chapter 3. And we'll look at our final and third point there. So exhortation to you, young man, control your thought life. Be sober-minded in how you think. And then number two, think about who your heroes and models are in your life. Who are your heroes and models? If you wrote a list of 
10 people you admire most, would, would a Christian be one of those models? <clears throat> Here's one. Would a pastor be one of those? Not me. I'm talking about just any other pastor. A godly pastor. One of my heroes is John Piper. One of my heroes is C.J. May. I love to hear that from young men. Godly men who are models in their life. Okay, and the last one, the expectations of godly young men. Well, if you're thinking right, controlling your thought life, feeding it with biblical truth, discipline yourself, saying no to sin, have accountability in your life, surrounding yourself with godly examples, godly mentors, godly models, godly parents, godly relatives, godly older people in the church, and that's your environment, and you're being proactive and deliberate and aggressive, then there should be fruit in your life accordingly. And that's point number three in verse eight. And Titus says, if you live like this, if you think right and have the right foundation and have godly behavior in your life, then you're going to have godly fruit that others can see and will impact them. And that's verse 8. Titus, continue to be sound in speech, what you say, being above reproach, in order that. And so the last part of verse 8 is what I want to emphasize here. In order that the opponent will be put to shame. Titus had opponents in the churches there at Crete. They were false teachers. They undermined him behind his back. They thought they knew more than he did. Some of them didn't like Paul, and they're talking about Paul behind his back. And Paul says, you know what? Don't take these guys on toe-to-toe in a fist fight. People who are mocking you and your opponents in life. Rather, fight them with good deeds and godly behavior and godly speech. Don't retaliate. Focus on how you might please God. God will take care of the rest. For as one very wise pastor has said for 40 years, as a Christian, focus on the, uh, the depth of your Christian life. Let God take care of the breadth of your Christian life, and he will. So point number three, young men, and uh, look to produce godly fruit in your life, and God will produce that, and that fruit God is going to use to shame your critics. Because, for example, if you're a young man, a teenager, or a college student at a secular college, and you're focused on pleasing Christ and living for God, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. You're going to be swimming upstream. People might mock you, make fun of you, might <clears throat> ostracize you, might not want to hang around you. Uh, but you don't want to retaliate and return evil for evil. Concentrate on pleasing God, pleasing Christ, doing the right thing, not violating your conscience. And then God will produce holy, godly fruit in your life, and God will use that fruit to take care of your critics. Usually, in a biblical way, your critics will be silenced not by your words, but by your godly behavior and your good deeds. That's the Christian ethic, and that is unique, and that's not the way of the world. Well, who are my opponents? I don't have any opponents. Well, then you need to reevaluate your life, because if you're living a godly life, you don't have to look far. You will have opponents. You will have people who resist you for your Christian living and your dedication to Christ. That's just It comes with being a Christian. Or maybe it's not a spiritual opponent. Maybe it's just an attitudinal opponent in a given situation. Think, you're on a basketball team or a volleyball team, and you play a game as a Christian. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. And um, the referee makes some bad calls. Because referees, that, I'm a coach, they always make bad calls. Uh, but anyway, the Christian thing to do is not yell at the ref and have a bad attitude and undermine delegated authority, but it's comply by the rules, and after the game, do this. Go up and shake the ref's hand and say, thanks, ref. You don't have to lie and say, nice game, ref, but just say, thank you, ref, because you're showing appreciation for their service. And that is the godly thing to do. That's 
representing uh, or respecting authority. And you can even say, yes, good job, rep, because they're trying their best. That, that'll stun your typical rep. And if you're a teenager or somebody in high school or, or college and you do that, they'll, they'll take note of that. Wow, that kid is different. And that is consistent with verse 8. Godly behavior, godly thinking, and as a result, the opponent will be put to shame by your godly fruit, your godly words, your godly living. They'll have nothing to say. They can't undermine your reputation. And if they try, it'll fall flat. Because it's not true. It doesn't have any teeth. It doesn't bite. It's not consistent with reality. So in light of that great truth, the expectations for godly young man, apologetic fruit. I want you to go to Romans 12 because I want to close with this passage for the young man who might want to be quick to defend himself and argue his case and justify his cause and take God the critic and go toe-to-toe with a verbal argument, which is so easy to do. And everything about that is contrary to Romans chapter 12, where I'm about to read. In light of this idea or this truth of let your actions do the talking, let your godly good deeds do the talking and the work on your behalf, So starting at verse 14 in Romans chapter 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Wouldn't you be complaining about the person at work that treats you bad, or at school, or that's in your class? You bless that person. Do not curse. It's the Christian ethic. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Or like Jesus said, if you pray for your enemy, love your enemy. If your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. If you do that, you'll be heaping burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen to that. So, young men, just by way of review, in light of everything that Paul shares here, just some goals for you to keep in mind, apply to your life, be praying about, have others help you do these things. So have self-controlled thinking as a young man. Seek wise counsel. Godly, older people. Pray before acting. It's part of that slowing down thing. Pray before acting. Wait. There's another one. Don't be in such a hurry. Respect authority. Number five. Respect. Young men need to respect authority. Have godly heroes in your life. Godly heroes. That God would be pleased with. And then write this down, young men. Just the reference. 2 Corinthians 5.9. 2 Corinthians 5.9. 2 Corinthians 5.9. Look it up later. Write it down. You want to write something on your hand? Write 2 Corinthians 5.9. Write it on a white card. Put it in your pocket. Write it on a poster board. Hang it in your room. Put it in your books at school. Because it talks about your sole ambition in life should be to please God. And young men are ambitious men. They should be, and they should be ambitious for the right thing, giving all glory to 
God and Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior. And with that, let's go ahead and pray and thank the Father and our Savior for our morning together. Father, we do thank you for our time together and thank you for the opportunity for worship and fellowship with the saints. Thank you that we can sing to you. Thank you for the treasure of your word that you've preserved for us in Scripture and the Bible. And literally, when we read Scripture and understand it, we know what you think. And God, use your thoughts to change our thoughts and bring them into conformity with your perfect will. God, I pray for the young men of our church. Thank you for them. They're a gift to us. They're a blessing to us. They are also a stewardship responsibility. Help us to be faithful in raising up all of our younger men to be godly young men and then godly older men who have a life that's a testimony for you, that they live for you, that they please you in all that they do, and that you would help them every step of the way, and that God, you would remind us to be a part of that help, because they need our help, but we do thank you for them, Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and mercy to all of us, we pray that you go before us, and that it would be our heart's desire to, and our greatest ambition to please you in all that we do, we commit our time to you, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.